she's alive. Alive! Hello, and welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror, film, and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. In this season, we'll be tracing the lineage of female monsters through cinema. In each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie. And today, we'll be talking about two sequels to two iconic horror monsters, The Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula's Daughter. As with the first film, Bride of Frankenstein, which was released in 1935, was directed by James Whale and stars Boris Karloff as the monster and Elsa Lancaster as the bride. Picking up directly after the events of the first film, Dr. Henry Frankenstein abandons his plans to create life, only to be tempted and finally coerced by his old, quite mad mentor, Dr. Pretorius, along with the monster, into building a bride for him. The original Frankenstein film was like the jaws of its time, and this sequel is widely considered to be an improvement on it, with the bride becoming the first female monster to achieve true pop culture icon status. Later on in this episode, we'll be diving into a somewhat lesser known, but no less interesting sequel, Dracula's Daughter from 1936. Picking up directly after Dracula is vanquished by Van Helsing in the first film, This one introduces Countess Maria Zaleska, the daughter of Count Dracula and herself a vampire. Countess Zaleska believes that she can be freed from her father's influence after his death, but when she still craves blood, she starts seeing a psychiatrist. Honestly, I can't recommend this film enough. It's such an intense and weird take on the troubled vampire, something that we've seen so much in later films and TV shows. I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Sabina Stent to discuss both films and what makes them so insanely watchable even now. Hi, Sabina. Thank you so much for doing this with me. No, hi, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. We're in the middle of a lightning storm here, so it's the perfect atmosphere to to discuss these two films. I love it. It's going to be if the if lightning strikes or if there's thunder in the middle of this recording, um, I'm going to be so into it. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm right by a window, so you never know. (laughs) (laughs) So in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most iconic screen monsters in cinema history, and another one that's not as famous. So we're going to be talking about The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935 and Dracula's Daughter from 1936, which are both female-centered follow-ups to two classic universal monsters Frankenstein or you know Frankenstein's monster really and Dracula so to kick off can you talk a little bit about your relationship with these films yeah of course um I I was already very familiar with Bride of Frankenstein um I I I must have seen it like many years ago but I I also think it's one of these films that I knew I I can't remember if I knew the visuals before I'd even seen the film, if that makes sense, because it's such an iconic looking film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I recognised the imagery before I'd even seen the film, even though I'd, I'd watched it, you know, many many years ago. And it's always been, you know, one of my one of my favourites from the Universal um, horrors of the the nineteen thirties. Um, but I wasn't familiar with Dracula's daughter, even though I was already a fan of Dracula. Um, So 
I was I was quite delighted to to watch them and see how they kind of they compare and they they have so many in a way similarities to some extent, but um, also how um, you can see how they they paved the way very much so um, for for future films. But I think I think the bride I I think especially the bride she's just such an iconic beautiful um eternal eternal film i love it a lot i love her a lot i mentioned it before that the bride and dracula's daughter are kind of follow-ups to these two iconic films so where did these films sit with within 1930s horror which is when you know these horror films and particularly with frankenstein and dracula really broke through when we're making crazy box office money but also legitimizing horror films on a big screen to a degree and obviously made Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi respectively into massive stars. So where do these sequels sit within within that canon of 1930s horror? Well, they were both really the first to to have female monsters, if if you know, if you can call them monsters. <laughs> um <laughs> so well, because the you know it's so interesting though about the bride being called a monster because she mm-hmm. doesn't really she doesn't do anything she doesn't do <laughs> anything she's in the you know she's in she's just has the most spectacular um, role in in spectacular you know part of of a horror film and just barely five minutes um, so they were obviously they were both um, the first female monsters um, they originally. Well, James Whale, who directed um, Bride of Frankenstein, and he had directed Frankenstein, he originally didn't want to do do this one because he didn't want to do a sequel. Um, James Whale, who directed both Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein, he originally didn't want to do the sequel, um, but he did it because obviously it was he was being you know. The, the huge popularity of the, of the first. Um, mm-hmm. And he was originally touted to do Dracula's Daughter and he didn't want to do that one because Bride was so popular. You know, the studio thought we've, we've got a winner here. We've got a good formula. Let's, we'll keep going. But in terms of the canon 1930s horror, I think what's interesting that before that, the the monsters, the creatures, however we want to label them, mm-hmm. they were... They were meant to be frightening. They were meant to be scary. We were meant to be in fear of them. And these two um, roles, they just changed that. They just, you know, mid-30s. And from then on, you could see that monsters were, didn't, they weren't always scary. They mm. didn't have to, you know, they, they're not necessarily um, a product of their counterparts. They're very different sequels, both of them. Um and they have, you know, they're they're more empathetic, more humanized in in some ways. So mm-hmm. they just brought in they brought in entertainment to the horror mm-hmm. section, if, if we want to go, we want to say that. Because when James Well made um, Bride, he originally didn't want to do it because he had achieved everything he wanted to do with Frankenstein. Um, so. With this one, he was he was his um, outlook. What his opinion was? Well, I'm going to make it entertaining, mm-hmm. and and it's hugely entertaining. I mean, it's it's very fun. It's very there's humor in it that we don't have in the first one. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and there's some silliness to it, which is which is really rather nice. Let's dig in then properly into The Bride of Frankenstein. I do think it a shame, Mary, to end your story quite so suddenly. That wasn't the end at all. Would you like to hear what happened after that? I feel like telling you. It's a perfect night for mystery and horror. The air itself is filled with monsters. I'm all ears. The Bride of Frankenstein. So how does it, you started, you started talking about it a little bit, but how, how do you think this updates Wales' original film? Um, I think it updates it because it just, um, it affirms that this isn't so much of a sequel because obviously the bride is in the book. Um, she's a condition though. She's not a, a physical character. Um, and also in, in Frankenstein, the um the credits it said based on the novel by was it did it say the novel by mrs you know percy shelley <laughs> which was instead of you know which was a bit you know um and yeah. in this one it does say mary wood and stonecraft and shelley um and they also affirm the connection that mary shelley had with this character she created by having that that prologue at the beginning um with yeah that prologue that that fell um how all of the senses that they had to cut some out yeah we we have to talk about that prologue so in this in this (laughs) first scene that opens the movie we actually see mary shelley who played who is played here by elsa lancaster who also then plays the bride and percy and lord byron sort of getting together Again, hanging out, I guess. Um, what did you make of that of that of that prologue scene? Um, a very genteel <laughs> version <laughs> of what actually went on. Well, we we relatively <laughs> went on, on on that night and on that kind of um, you know holiday, whatever you want to call it, when they were all in that house together. Um, oh, is it? Is yeah, it meant it's, to be it's, that it's, night. I I th- I don't know actually, I don't know if it is. I I mean I thought it was uh because I mean I'm low key obsessed with that um holiday yeah. trip that they all took, but oh, I thought because <laughs> they already speak about Mary Shelley having written Frankenstein. That's and true. Byron That's and true. Percy are like, oh, are you gonna tell us another horror story, Mary? But That's you're right, it. you know they're they're both kind of so foppish. And yeah. not at all in the way that at no. least you know, we know Byron and Shelley to have been. It wasn't quite the mad, bad, dangerous to know <laughs> Byron that, we, we, that was so notorious. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a. I, I wondered if it had, if this film had been hadn't been subjected to the code, if we would have mm. a little bit more. But obviously, they had to cut out like fifteen. Was it fifteen minutes? They had to cut. Oh, oh wow! Minutes or eight minutes. Um, 
some, there's like a, a chunk that had to be emitted and I don't know if it was mainly to do because of her you know decolletage with her gown <laughs> on um exposing too much flesh and I I think it was things like that that they that yeah but I think I think it's quite it's quite what and <laughs> that we see it when we see this this montage this not montage this um this prologue I think it's quite funny and I think it just sets up the film by affirming her place and 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 also affirming that this film is going to entertain it's not going to be anything necessarily frightening um but I also think it's interesting that they affirm that this is um you know wickedness comes from the minds of you know dear sweet Mary as as they call her at one point and you know how how can this this very you know lovely creature <laughs> bore such a such a creation yeah i really loved it as a as a wink to the fact that mary shelley is the author of frankenstein or the modern prometheus yeah. the fact that this mm-hmm. these these images you know and this enduring sci-fi horror story sprung from her and you know when she wrote it when she was what 18 but i think i don't know if you if you read it this way maybe i'm just a little bit obsessed right now with that with that novel and with shelley but i sort of read it as a little wink to the fact that perhaps in the original frankenstein like you mentioned um her name her authorship wasn't as mentioned whereas uh or as platformed as in this film but also because the book, when yeah. she originally published it, because she published it anonymously, as was um, as female authors tended to do, um, quite a bit, I think. Mm-hmm. But Percy Shelley wrote the introduction. People assumed that he had written Frankenstein, and I think, in fact, they a lot of not a lot, a lot of people at that time assumed that he had written it, but also some people still are trying to make a case trying to prove that Percy Shelley actually wrote Frankenstein and not Mary yeah oh gosh (laughs) that's a really rambly way of think of asking do you think it's a little nod to reaffirming the fact that she's the mother of Frankenstein yeah definitely and I think it's just strange that some people still believe that she didn't write this this book um because you know, um, but that obviously happens with any woman authors. You know, her her authorship <laughs> will be called into question, especially with, you know, when she was with someone as well known as Shelley. Um, yeah, I I mean, but I think it's good. I I do like that they did that, and they were like, no, this is her work. <laughs> yeah, her work. It didn't come from the minds of these two men. It came from the mind of this young woman amazing and um let's talk a little bit about the bride herself um because she does feature in the book in the original book and um i how how does the film sort of update her because she if i recall correctly she's not she never actually materializes in the book but she is no frankenstein as in victor frankenstein yeah begins to build her right he does yes and then he destroys her um Mm -hmm. he is the one who destroys her because he doesn't want to have 
you know, this other creature, um, like terrorizing people or, or, you know, frightening people as the his first creation has been doing. Um, so um, I like that they make her physical in this one. We actually see her as, as you know, I don't want to say living, but animated mm-hmm. and um, animated and, you know, those incredible movements that Elsa Lancaster does. Um, she is just, she is like a, you know, I love the way they, they, they created her look, you know, the mm. brilliant Jack Pierce, brilliant Jack yeah. Pierce with um, the Nefertiti star hair. So she's like a, a sort of horror goddess. She is, mm. she is not frightening to look at. She's, she's beautiful um and i remember reading that um they didn't want like a grotesque a grotesque yeah. you know female monster they wanted her to be to be gorgeous and you know she she is um and she's just got that very faint kind of scarring or stitching around her jawline and around her i think i believe it's kind of bit around her temples um mm-hmm. but not as stapled not like the staple that obviously um the first creature has mm-hmm. um so i like i like the way they make her physical by her sound you know the sound she emits by her yeah. movements by this kind of frightened appalled she looks appalled because she just looks so shocked to be to be there to be present mm-hmm. um and obviously in this white gown in this like beautiful bridal you know bridal virgin or white gown um so i just I, think the whole combination is so perfect oh absolutely i couldn't agree with you more you know this there's always i mean she is beautiful and i have a lot of issues with the fact that you know it is designed to for her to not be horrific in the same way as yeah monster is horrific but i also have to love the look because there is it's all just slightly on the edge of the monstrous like she's got this beautiful white gown which sort of works as both a hospital gown and a, a yes. bridal dress a bridal gown and also just has these you know her sleeves are bandages and it's all just covered up to her neck. You know, it's very sort of like shapeless, but at the same time creates this great sort of bulky shape as well around her, which yes. which Boris Karloff's monster also has. Like he's sort of too big to really be a, a, a regular man. Like he, there is something monstrous about the shape of him. And there is also something almost like doll-like about the bride. Yeah, she is very doll-like, isn't yeah. she? Yeah, it's like she's, you know, she's literally been made from pieces in the same way as the monster has, but still has to sort of be beautiful and um, yes. sort of, but that has that edge, you know, like the hair that you mentioned, like a goddess, but also is a bit, you know, mad and has that streak of white like everything she seems also like jerky in her movements as if she's just been Mm -hmm. which we know she has like electrocuted so there's always just something off about the way that she moves and it's all down to Elsa Lancaster yes and she's got and she's got those beautiful expressive eyes 
um yes. and she just just so much obviously she just shrieks that that you know shriek that she based on swans the the hissing of swans and um which is just so fabulous when you you think about how she used her her um you know influence for for that sound and she just her you know darting around eyes just taking everything in and um she just yeah she's just just so much with with ze- you know zero dialogue and just she's there and then she's gone she's an apparition in many ways she's kind oh, of this yeah. this beautiful goat i don't i don't want to keep saying beautiful but she's this just fantastic like ghostly creature mm. who's there one minute she's gone the next because the whole film is in many ways one and most of the film is leading up to her creation and then mm. as soon as she's there she's just gone which is which is quite extraordinary yeah i mean it is i'd forgotten before we watched it that you know the film is called the bride of frankincense the whole thing hinges on her and she's the the key kind of promotional element and is still one of the most iconic of not the most iconic sort of female monster in hollywood cinema history because of her look but you're right we just get about five minutes of her and she I th- just i think i timed it and it was about five minutes it, i think it was about five minutes i don't even think it was like less than 10 maybe just over five but yeah and it's it's an unreal it's just unreal but i love the fact that even in those five minutes she has some agency like she rejects yes her the thing that she's been created for which is basically to be a companion and a bride to the monster and she just goes nah but you know in a screechy way yes yes it's that that first glance when she sees him and then that's it she she is not no (laughs) she can't be manipulated she's been she's been fashioned from all these pieces but at the same time she cannot be manipulated to to be with this creature and um i read i read somewhere quite quite interesting it was saying how frankenstein and the crazy you know pretorius (laughs) are like him the other doctor uh, like that he's a mad you know he's a madder version of frankenstein pretorius is and then you've got the bride who's like a sort of madder version of the creature and so they're okay. faced with their mirror images in this film which is which is quite interesting i thought oh, oh, I that is that. something i hadn't thought about before but i was like yeah it's that you can really see how they you know they come a- against something who is pretty much them but an extreme version because the because the actual creature he softens a lot in in this film Mm -hmm. he is he has more dialogue he is um even like his physicality changes like his Mm -hmm. his hair will change like Mm -hmm. his hair you know kind of grows and his scars heal um so but she is just you know that bolt of you know, bolt of lightning that she's being created with, and then that's it. We have to talk a little bit about the mad scientist approach because actually, for a good chunk, I would I want to say maybe the first third of the film, we actually don't see the monster, or you know, and obviously not the bride, like no. we mentioned before. 
So we spend a lot of time with Victor Frankenstein and with Pretorius, mm-hmm. who you mentioned a little bit before, but would you like to elaborate a little bit on, on who this mad dude is? Yeah, he is just he's just the most bonkers, like mad scientist, isn't he? He is the epitome of a mad scientist. When you know, um you think, you know, Frank Dr. Frankenstein is is kind of you know unhinged and a loose cannon mm-hmm. but he has nothing on, on this guy um and i you know those absurd experiments he does creating life and their miniature life and he has them what does he call them he, he gives them a specific name with those you know he's got his king and his queen and his ballerina in the the glass oh, um i forgot what he yeah, called what them i just i just remember yeah. being completely like stumped because I totally blanked about the little creatures and then when he displays them to Frankenstein I remember even uh just like looking at it's like am I am I what (laughs) this is hilarious there are moments in the film when you forget this is like you know Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein because you're like, where is this going? <laughs> where yeah. is this going? It's because it's so absurd. And I think that was the point. He was there to add, like, the character was there to add this comedic, entertaining humor mm. that the first film didn't have. But it just really takes it to the extreme. And it's, it's, yeah, it's so bonkers. It's, it's great. <laughs> and um, just to start wrapping up the conversation about this film and before we move on to Dracula's Daughter. What do you think it's been about the bride that's made her so iconic in the cultural consciousness? The fact that we still instantly recognize her from a single image of her profile. Um, I think a lot is to do with the look. I think a huge amount to do with the look. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a look that has been replicated, you know, I'm sure many people have done it on Halloween. Even the Simpsons... Um, they, I think, was it Marge or Maggie yeah. that Replin, you know, was dressed as the bride on, on a treehouse of horror? So it's even something that children will recognise, even if they haven't seen the film. Mm. It's just such a, you know, it's a, you know, visual image, powerful visual image. But I also think it's the combination of her silence that mm. she doesn't, she has, you know, no dialogue apart from, you know, this hissing. And I also think it's that she is. Um, like a a villain or a monster or a creature, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't do anything. She doesn't do anything apart from um, kind of, yeah, be created, be born Mm -hmm. and reject her her intended. And then she's gone. And I think that's it. The fact that she's just, it's the most um, interesting. You can't even, you can call it a cameo in her own film to some extent because she is, barely there but it's just such a powerful you know you know five to nine minutes mm-hmm. however much we get it's it's you can you can watch the film but those that scene is what you will remember and I think mm-hmm. that's what makes it so enduring um that you're you're watching and you're waiting for her and then as soon as she's there she's she's gone and do you think it's a film that contemporary horror fans could still enjoy oh yes very 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 much so and i think there's just i think everyone will get something out of it and i think it's it's just the combined elements of the the horror 
the the comedy, the entertainment, the visuals, and just I think it's I think it's a spectacular horror films. I I think the I think the Universal horror films are always wonderful anyway, but I think this mm-hmm. particular one really really stands the test of time. I just think it's I think it's great, and I think it's it's wonderful when you always hear how audiences are rediscovering it and watching it for the first time. And I think um, it's just such a, a great, powerful visual um, mm-hmm. image, and it's obviously it's a it's a great book as well. We we love we love Mary Shelley's, you know, and we love Frankenstein, you know, the modern Prometheus. So I think it it's just such a great book and great film. Thank you. And now moving on to Dracula's daughter. which is the direct sequel to the 1931 Dracula. And it literally picks up the story minutes after the the end of the events of the first film. But this time there's no Bela Lugosi. Uh, it's not directed by Todd Browning. And we have a female vampire as our protagonist slash monster of the film. So what do you what did you make of Countess Valeska taking over the mantle from Dracula? I think she's so interesting because mm. I was I was very unfamiliar with with this particular film. Um I can't remember having watched it or if I had I hadn't really remembered it was that long ago. Um but I don't think I had. Um I think it's so interesting because it's it's very much updates the Dracula myth, and it feels a very modern film mm. for for what it's saying and what it does. Um, but I like the fact that she's very much of a, a bit like Frankenstein, a bit like the creature. She is mm. a tortured, a tortured monster because she doesn't relish as much as Dracula you know she feels she doesn't you know she doesn't like the the fact that she's having to to suck people's blood she she considers her condition a curse Mm. um and I think there's so many interesting points that they make in this film that I think have really kind of set the path for the tortured vampire in in like popular culture that we want to we want to call it oh my god yes i think you're so right you know even i'd not seen this film before um starting to prepare for this season and it was shocking to me just how influential i think it is without many people having kind of you know tracing back this idea of a a dandy, articulate, perfectly sort of, you know, presentable fancy vampire who's actually incredibly tortured by her her status as a vampire. 
Um, and it's it's inevitable that we compare her to Bella Lugosi's Dracula because that that is you know that's the direct companion piece. But Bella Lugosi's Dracula is sort of very positioned as a sort of as a foreign seducer. You know, he doesn't speak that much. It's yes. all in his eyes. You know, he is sort of very much kind of literally comes from a foreign land. You know, we meet him in a castle, all of this business, whether it's Countess Aleska is a metropolitan sort of, you know, socialite. We meet her in in a big city. She has, the, you know, this title. People know her. People talk about her. She, you know, sort of is... I mean, and I, I, I hate this word, but she's sort of, you know, prese- presented as being exotic looking and she's described as such. Yes. But she's, you know, perfectly fitting into high society and, you know, dresses the part and gets invited to the parties. People want to meet her. You know, she's, you know, for lack of a better word, an integrated vampire. Yeah. And I think I think that is um something that we've definitely seen in films especially films and books um later on i think anne rice's chronicles um yes offer a huge um would obviously um rely huge on on this um owe a lot to this film and i think she did um i read that um queen of the damned was was very heavily influenced by this film but i also think her kind of you know her vampires in their beautiful jewels in their sort of you know velvet and waistcoats attending society balls in the the 16th century and socializing mm. um and mixing in high society adds so you know offers so much um to this because i just think it's it's you didn't you didn't think of obviously um dracula is is there in his castle he's in transylvania <laughs> he's uh you know in his lair and she's just this woman who's moving quite freely and who everyone seems to be fascinated by. And they just want, you know, she's like the most, you know, she's like a, the hot new socialite that they're all intrigued by. Um, and so I think from that point of view, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously there were nods to the um, the predecessor, its predecessor, it's nods, to yeah. Dra- heavy nods to Dracula. But um, you know, when we see her, we just we her eyes are highlighted. Um, you know, her beautiful her her. Um, you know, we focus on her eyes. We just see her eyes yeah. very much like with with Dracula, with his you know eyes being illuminated. Mm-hmm. Um, her ring that she uses to like hypnotize people is is a bit like when Bela Lugosi used to use his hands to hypnotize people. Yes. Um, can we talk a little bit about her sort of the um, the violence in this film? So the actual horror, because um, it's very it's very bloodless. I thought like quite cerebral because we yes. we never really see her bite anyone, and like you just mentioned, you know, she uses no. her ring to hypnotize her victims as opposed to um, you know physically attack them. Now, what did you what did you make of this? What did you make of the horror of the film? I always think it's when you can't see and sometimes you can't see anything but you know what's going on and mm-hmm. it's when so much horror so much horror is what your mind the pictures your mind puts together um 
So not seeing it can be as effective, if not more, than actually seeing all the blood and all, all the gore. Um, it's psychological in, in many ways, but I think a lot of this film, obviously, it fell foul to censorship, so they couldn't show so much. They couldn't show certain things. But um, I think not seeing things is extremely effective. But I also think it's adds to the the sexual angle of the film. It's like they cut away. It's like certain films cut away to the sex scene. This cuts away to the the drinking, if you want to call it that. Um, and so I think there's lots of kind of doubles that we can we can read in this this particular one. Yeah, and um, one of the most, I mean, this, what, a couple of really interesting articles I've read about the film that I link in the show notes, kind of really, and I saw that, I mean, personally, I saw this very clearly in the film as well, and I'm curious to see what you think, is kind of the reading of Countess Aleska as a, as a queer character, and, you know, notably the fact that she's mainly pursuing uh young female victims uh so you know victims is a strong word she's pursuing young young women um to as her sort of prey and there's also this element of kind of her as a vampire going to therapy which in itself is something we see then quite a bit uh later on in pop culture but also there's you know there's this reading that i find really interesting of sort of her as a lesbian character sort of going to therapy to quote unquote fix herself um which i think is quite a a strong reading what do what do you make of it yeah i think that that is hugely hugely um telling and i also think it's something that again we have we have seen in in films with with kind of this affliction being something that can be, you know, cured elsewhere. So you have all these, these like lesbian and homoerotic undertones. A lot with vampire, a, a lot with modern vampire films, anyway. Um, but I think it's 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 um, telling that obviously she only but she only kind of, I don't want to say hunts, but hunts, you know, goes after women, young women, um, and. It's just, you know, she wants to be, you know, her curse is her sexuality. So there's all, it's very, very modern for for what it does in many ways. It feels like, it feels almost noirish in, 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 as a horror film um, because it, there's so many taboo subjects that, are go, that seem to be going on. Mm. Um, but I, I think it, I just think it's really, really interesting in terms of, you know, how it explores her sexuality and, um, because obviously we have, um, it was later on, wasn't it? It was, it was more like in the eighties horror films where vampires mm-hmm. were, you know, common, common as you know, a commentary on, on AIDS and on sort of other venereal diseases because of the blood. Um, mm-hmm. but I think in this particular one it's just fascinating to have this high society woman who just feels so out of she doesn't you know she feels so out of place with with who she is and she feel like she can't you know 
she feels wrong she feels like there's something mm-hmm. wrong with her and obviously whatever she, she wants to do anything to i'm not saying be normal but be cured and and in it's in and in this case the vampirism functions as a as a double so it's both her sexuality and her, her curse her blood curse as well so i think it's very interesting and what did you make of Gloria Holden um of her performance as Alaska? Oh, she's really wonderful, I think. I think she's just so very composed, very still. Um, I read that she didn't want to do the role because she yeah. she thought she would be typecast from then on. Um, and so she seems very like almost has this disaffected air by the role, by you know, when she plays the part, she doesn't bristle with with you know enthusiasm and I think that just mm. enhances this this character who's playing not necessarily a cold society woman but she's playing this kind of sl- very composed very slightly held, holds herself back a bit mm. um and I just think I think it's a really great understated performance yeah I read as well that she didn't want to take on the role because she'd seen what had happened to Lugosi, who was never really able to shake the character of Dracula and was for, and was yeah. incredibly typecast, not just in horror films, but also as, uh, as Dracula and kind of kept coming back to that role in increasingly demeaning ways. And I think she, she was a contract player at Universal and this was going to be her first leading role and she didn't want it to be yeah. as iconic in a way but I think you're yeah. right there is sort of a a almost resistance in her performance like she's keeping something back mm-hmm. and weirdly I think it really works for this particular character because I think she's always Countess Aleska seems to me to be always trying to repress something inside herself and never really yeah. lets herself be fully who she is or even lash out you know she's sort of a very um self-possessed vampire yes yes yeah she's not the flamboyant vampire <laughs> that we yeah. that we were you know used to and it, yeah it's, it's a very um it's a very interesting performance it's a yeah very yeah it's and it's and it's just nice to to have that instead of that kind of lavish vampire throwing you know their way mm. to that just to, yeah, to have someone slightly on their guard yeah and you know we we spoke uh quite a bit about the influence that the bride has had and how iconic she is and we've spoken as well about kind of the the influence that this film has had maybe despite not being as, as recognizable you know even on all of the blu-ray packs of universal classics and stuff the bride of frankenstein is always on there but never once is dracula's daughter on there so why do you think no it's surprising yeah and why do you think it's not sort of had that um iconic status as much as the bride did i don't know if it's because it's a more nuanced subtle film um and it doesn't it's not as obviously a vampire film as maybe Dracula is. Um, so if she had been in her mansion, you know, in her castle in Transylvania, it might have been. It might have been hugely popular. Um, I think people don't see her as the monster that the title claims her to be. 
um I was all I, I also I'm not sure this is going to sound very kind of you know wrong to say but um I don't know if maybe if James Wells name had been attached it might have done better box office because obviously mm. his name was such a draw at the time um I just think it was a combination of of various factors really but it doesn't so much feel it's very I I've said before it feels very noirish and I think maybe it falls into that kind of as like a horror noir so I feel mm-hmm. um it's maybe not it's maybe not monstrous enough to be a, a horror film and I think because she doesn't have any she doesn't look like the bride she doesn't have this elaborate you know outfit this you know have this you know elaborate costume or something and you know she dresses very you know all in black but very tailored um very you know still be still you know beautifully um and I think the fact that she's the the monster a monster who doesn't look like a monster in many ways and I think um maybe people maybe people wanted her to be more of a monster (laughs) than than she actually was in the film to wrap up, do you think it's it's a film that contemporary that horror fans should watch? I I think so. Yeah, I think I also think if you've if you've watched you know Buffy, if you watch the Angel, if you watch True Blood, the Vampire Chronicles, it, um, read the Vampire Chronicles. If you're if you're very much into these kind of tortured <laughs> vampires who are who are yearning to to be human and experience mortality um i think it's definitely one that you'll enjoy and be interested in and you will see how it's kind of paved the way for those films m- more recently so i would definitely recommend it awesome thank you so much sabina for your time and for your insight and where can people find out more about your work online um, you can find me on Twitter, um, just at Selena Stent, um, and you can find links to my work and everything there. Thanks. Amazing. Thank you so much. And that's it for another episode of the Final Ghost Podcast. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at thefinalghostuk. You can also follow Sabina on Twitter at Sabina Stent and I tweet a lot of cat pictures and monster gifts on Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening and join us next week for a deep dive into some 1950s weirdness.